To tell you the truth, I am very excited about the possibilities that people are talking about, about these aliens out there. I must admit, I don't know what to think on that side of it. My tendency is to think that um, whatever they're seeing out there, it might be in the demonic realm, that kind of thing. We're not exactly sure all of the things that we're seeing. But there has been a lot of testimony, eyewitness testimonies about a lot of, of flying objects. And there's people actually in this room here this morning who have seen things that you cannot explain in many ways. And so I was riveted to the television a few months ago whenever they had the house hearings of the people who thought they had been seeing um, some kind of unidentified flying objects. I don't think they call them that anymore. They call them uh, UAPs now. But I think it's so interesting because either way, let's say that, you know, uh, that they are something out there of the demonic realm. The Bible has been talking about that for centuries, hasn't it? And even if they're not anything supernatural or anything like that, then it's pretty fascinating what lies ahead in our world for things that can do the things that they're doing. It's very interesting on either side of the park you want to sit on that, isn't it? So I'm looking forward to what fleshes out. The reason I bring this up is because some people like to put the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the same category as you would observations of like UFOs or other types of unexplainable objects, but it's much different. The, the, the proof and the, the eyewitnesses and the circumstances about the resurrection of Jesus uh, is much different. And we're going to be looking at some of that today. But we're in the beginning of a series, and typically when you go to a beginning of a series, and because of the fact that I'm a Bible teacher and I love the Word of God. I went to Dallas Seminary and they just kind of beat this into us. And I'm preaching to people who love the Word of God and want to know the context of things. Is I'm going to do something that's twofold this morning. Is I'm going to give us an introduction to the book of Acts. Because for some of you, it may have been a while that you were involved in that, in that study of that book. And, but we're also going to look at some things related to proofs of the resurrection. Uh, we're going to look at, first off, in this kind of part one, I guess you would say, at the relevant material related to helping us set the context for our study over the next few months. In part two, we are going to explore Acts verse 1, verse 3, and the statement that the Holy Spirit makes about all the convincing proofs that we have regarding the resurrection of Jesus. There is not a more important subject in all of Christianity than the subject of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As our brother Bruce read earlier from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our faith, your faith, and my faith, is worthless. The resurrection is key. It's the key to everything. And so we're going to be looking at that this morning. But before we do, we need to get a lay in the land with the book of Acts. And we are going to be looking at both the background, the author, and those types of things as we begin the study. Luke and Acts can really be seen as one book. It's part one and part two by the same author. And it contains about 27% of all the words that even exist in the New Testament. So that's a significant amount. It's a large book. 
to look at. And the author, obviously, is Luke the physician. He's called that multiple times in the scriptures. And Luke was probably from the city of either Antioch, but more likely Troas. Uh, he wrote both the Gospel of Luke and Acts. We know that he joined Paul during the second missionary journey because of how he switches from the third person plural pronoun, they, to the second person plural, plural pronoun, we, in Acts 16.10. How many of you are aware of that? You just caught that. Yes. So to whom was the book of Acts written? Uh, let's look at verse 1. Luke writes this way. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. After he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he has chosen. So you can see here that Luke makes reference to a man named Theophilus. And in both the introduction to the Gospel of Luke and in here in verse 1 of, chapter, of Acts, it means lover of God. And we are not completely certain who Theophilus is. There are many guesses to who he is. We're never really told who he is, but there are three main views about who this guy is. He might be a government official. You guys remember that Paul was imprisoned and he was in Rome whenever Luke was probably writing this. And the way Luke addresses him in the first gospel is that he gives him the title of honorable Theophilus. And that's usually the kind of prefix or the title that you would give somebody of, of, of importance. And usually it would be some kind of government official. And so some have suggested that he might be an official to whom an explanation of Paul's activities during all of his missionary journeys could have been presented in preparation for his trial before Nero. Because he was preparing, if you remember, at the end of the book of of chapter 28 where he's about to see Nero. So he could be somebody who's just like, tell us what happened, tell us what you did type of thing. But we have something interesting occurs that when we get to Acts here, that, that title Theophilus, the Honorable Theophilus, well, the honorable part is dropped and it's just Theophilus. And so some speculate that perhaps Theophilus, as a result of reading the book of Luke, became a believer and they dropped that title because of Passages like Matthew 28, 12, where it really seems to um, want us Christians to minimize giving each other titles in that way. And so perhaps at this point, Luke is just addressing him as Brother Theophilus. We don't know. It could go either way. The other possibility is that he was a converted priest. And so he wanted to know how the, the message of Christianity tied to the Christian faith, and especially to Jews. And... Or he could have been just some other type of converted fellow that somehow heard about the gospel. And, and part of the reason for that is, is because in chapter 1 of Luke, it says that he wanted to give him an orderly account about the things in which he has been instructed. And so that word instructed there is where we get the word cat, catechism from. It's catecheco. So it means we're catechism. So it's this idea. It's not just like informed. It's this idea is that Theophilus went through sort of a catechism, as it were, of the Christian faith. And now that Luke was going to lay everything out in an orderly way so that he could probably understand what was going on. Okay. This is all just background. We have to know this stuff, right? Please don't sleep on me. General. Another thing is general title. It could be a general title for just a Christians everywhere. You know, Theophilus, a lover of God, just could just mean, hey, any Christian who's out there who happens to be reading this, uh, but just anybody who wants to know about the story. But we don't know for sure. I hope that we see Theophilus in heaven. 
So what is the purpose for which Luke writes this account? Why is he writing this? Well, it's related to his purpose in the book of Luke. You may remember that there, the purpose was to give Theophilus, quote, an orderly sequence of the events so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. He wanted to give him this account. And in Acts, what he's doing is he's picking up with this story that he began in Luke, and he's going to now explain things that went beyond, quote, what Jesus began to do and teach, and he's going to talk about what Jesus is doing today, what Jesus was doing now as a result of his resurrection. And so the book of Acts makes clear that the work of Jesus did not stop at his ascension, but continues on through the Spirit's filling and empowering of the apostles. And that's what we're going to see through the book of Acts. His work continues today through the testimony of the apostles, which is what this is. This is the testimony of the apostles. The word still goes forward. God's work still goes forward because we have the testimony of what the apostles saw and heard and felt. And so it still goes forward today. And the testimony has been passed down to us and preserved by the Holy Spirit. So this work is continuing in our day. And we want to faithfully minister the word of God to people's lives. We want to have programs. We want to have other events. We want to have things that engage people's hearts and minds. But don't ever forget that it's the word of God that changes people's hearts and how he uses it in that way. So how does Luke unfold the purpose of Acts? Well, you can actually trace the storyline of Acts by looking a couple of verses down in verse 8. And you can follow the geographical progression that is identified there. It says, but you will receive, this is a little further down, it says, but you, talking about the disciples, will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So you see this geographical progression that goes out from the, the very origin of where Christianity began there in Jerusalem, and it begins to move outward. And so that is also the beginning of our series. We call it Acts uh, into all the world is what we're going to be calling this series as a result of that. So I made this graphic to visually illustrate the way the book unfolds. Oh, Chapters 1 through 7 cover how the gospel starts off in Jerusalem, especially among those who, who crucified Jesus. The people who crucified Jesus were supposedly the people in the know. These were the Pharisees in, this, in the priesthood and the people who were the real uh, religious people of the land. Well, they were the ones to first encounter the realities of the risen Savior. And so it began there and it began to progressively move outward. And you can see that it went from there as it expanded outward to Judea and Samaria. As it continues to go in chapters 13 through 28, the work of the Lord through the Spirit continues on to the ends of the earth, and then ultimately we know that it gets to where? Rome. And we can see how it ends there. Continuing on, Rome is, of course, where the book of Acts ends, and Paul is under household arrest, waiting a trial by Nero. And then in this overlay, you can see how it expands from involving mostly the Jews to the Gentiles, and it also expands out from Jerusalem to Antioch. So Jerusalem pretty much covers all of the Judea area. And then when we get to Antioch, it kind of is the launching pad for the gospel going to the Gentile nations. So what are some of the major dates that Acts covers? This timeline highlights a few of those. After the resurrection of Jesus in AD 33, you see that Paul's conversion probably occurred within a year 
of the resurrection. That's pretty quickly. And then you see about 12 years goes by before he actually goes on his first missionary journey. So I think that really points to the necessity for training to occur, even though he was an apostle and even though he knew the back, the Old Testament like the back of his hand, the Lord still had to work out his theology. And obviously he did that in Antioch whenever he left Damascus and Jerusalem, went to Antioch, he was there. There was about 10 to 12 years that passed by in which Paul, I think, it was getting trained before he goes on his first missionary journey. And then the second missionary journey was about AD 4951. The third missionary journey was about AD 52-57, where that occurs. We speculate that Paul was released after having been put in prison in Rome. And we're not really sure what happens during that period of time. It was a short period of time, but we have we suspect that he wrote the book of 1 Timothy and Titus during that period of time. And then he was rearrested, put back in prison, and then eventually was martyred under Nero during that period of time. And of course, we don't have the details of all of that. Uh, second Timothy was probably written during his second imprisonment because of just the tone of that book. If you've ever read that book and how it, how it goes forth, it is definitely a book that doesn't sound like he has much hope in the future as you read it. So those are the, those are the basic things of the book. So that's part one. How do you feel? You're completely ready now to start this book. So that's good. Well, part two, um, as we transition into part two, I thought that it might be helpful to see what the implications are if the resurrection was a hoax. What are the implica what implications if the resurrection is a hoax? And so we want to make sure we have volume on this because uh, this this is what it would probably look like. Are we all here? I need 100% participation for this to work. Yeah, everyone's here. All 12, 11, 11 of us. Well, what's the plan? Well, as you know, Jesus is dead. <sighs> but stick with me, stick with me, okay? Stick with me. I have a plan. We are going to steal his body. Okay, okay, I'm tracking with you. What's next? And then we're going to tell the whole world that you rose from the dead. Oh, oh, okay. oh you know I'm in. I love it already. <laughs> all right, classic, classic, then what? And then we're all going to get brutally murdered. Oh! <laughs> wait, 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 come again, come again. Could you go over that last part real, real quick? So what? We get murdered. What's the problem? Uh, I, I like it. <laughs> I like it. I mean, don't don't get me wrong, Peach. I love me a good hoax as much as the next guy, right? <laughs> right? Uh, uh, what's in it for us? Do we all get riches, fame, and fortune first, right? No, no, get this. You're going to be hated, hated. persecuted, and reviled for the rest of your life! Oh! Fellas, fellas, uh, look, uh, I, I, I gotta be missing something here, right? <laughs> okay? I mean, why on earth would we do this? Can, can we start over? Oh, okay. We'll start from the beginning. Everybody, for John, yeah. the beloved disciple. So, okay. 
We go down to Jesus' tomb. I, sounds good. This yes. is really yes. easy. Then we pay off the Roman soldiers that are guarding the tomb with their lives. Why, why would they do that? Then we somehow roll away the big stone that's in front of the tomb. Obviously, you have to move the rock first. Yeah. And then we steal his body. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess. Then we tell the whole world that he rose from the dead and we get brutally murdered for our troubles! Ah! Epic break, bro. Peter, you rock! Oh, oh, okay, guys, okay, and then what? Then we all get killed, come on. When do we see ourselves become exalted and praised? That's just it. You don't! Anyone hear what I'm saying? This is the most idiotic plan of all time! Chill out, bro. I mean, do I really have to explain the joke to you? Look, it's that we lie about Jesus' resurrection, and then we all die. How am I supposed to chill out when our heads are getting cut off? Or worse, what is wrong with you guys? Thomas! Okay, look, back me up here. I know you can't be cool with all this. I know you gotta have some doubts. Come on. Doubts? Yeah. I don't know about having any doubts! Shit, Okay, okay, you guys have officially lost it, okay? I, I am out of here. I, I'd rather be exiled to a deserted island than spend another minute with you wackos. Have I got some good news for you? We want to thank our friends at iBible for sponsoring this video. If you want to see one of the most exciting Bible projects happening in our generation, I want you to click on this link. I don't know what a, a link is or a video. It's not, what magic is this? Who are you? Who are you looking at me? Fed to lions. As if we use their, uh, if we use their information, we might as well let them do their advertisement, so. I don't know if many people have put very much thought into what if the resurrection was not true, if it was a hoax. And of course, many people today don't understand the implications of uh, believing that the resurrection of Jesus' bodily resurrection is a hoax. So what is the one thing I want us to know this morning as we kind of transition into this part two? What is the one thing I want us to know? I want us to know that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is multiple, credible, and convincing. It's multiple, it's credible, and it's convincing. And we're gonna go through some of this and look at some of the passages and witnesses to this resurrection. Let's begin at looking at Acts chapter one. We're gonna start in verse three. And it reads, after he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by convincing proofs. Okay, convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of about 40 days in speaking about the kingdom of God. So this morning, I want to look at three convincing proofs of the resurrection of Jesus. And the first one is going to be that the appearances of Jesus is convincing proof of the resurrection. It is the appearances of Jesus is convincing proof. So you guys remember that in Mark chapter 6, verse 19, he revealed himself to Mary Magdalene. Remember, she saw Jesus at the tomb and then saw him later at the tomb. He revealed himself to other women as they touched Jesus and worshiped him in Matthew 28. Remember that 
he revealed himself to two disciples. They walked and talked and ate with him. Those are found in Mark and Luke as well. And then Peter saw Jesus alone when he was by himself. And then the group of apostles without Thomas saw Peter. And they saw Jesus and they ate food in his presence. So what I'm trying to establish here is that there are independent accounts of seeing Jesus that were separated um, both by time, geography, and otherwise. And all of these people reported at the same time within a few hours of one another and over a few period of days this idea that Jesus is alive. Then we have the seven disciples by the sea. This was Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, and John. And it was while they were fishing and then ate breakfast together. Okay, so think about that. You're, you're, standing, on the, you're standing in a boat. You see Jesus who's somebody who might be Jesus, and you end up going and you take a swim. If you're asleep or dreaming, you'd probably be woken up by that. You jump in the water. You go over there, and you come to him, and you recognize it's Jesus, and you touch him. You eat with him. Right? This is not like a figment of imagination. This is not like a hallucination or uh, an illusion. You know, illusions are something that can occur. Everybody can see an illusion at the same time. That's one of a category of a type of, of things that are hard to prove. Illusions are things where you think you're, you see something, but it's not actually what it is. We see magicians do that all the time, right? An illusion where an entire group can see the same thing. Um, you could be deluded. That's another thing is that you can see something that's not there. If you think that, you know, if you're in a room by yourself and you think somebody's in there with you, you are deluded into thinking that somebody's there. But then you have hallucinations and hallucinations are one of the theories that some critics of the scriptures have said must have occurred was hallucinations. But the problems with the hallucination is that as, um, you know, psychological scientists will tell us is that that's only something that can really happen on the inside of you as an individual person. The idea that groups of people can have the same hallucination is not possible. And even whenever there are groups of people who perhaps might see an illusion, depending on the on how well the illusion is done, not everybody even sees the illusion. Only, you know, oftentimes 7% of the people can see an illusion. So for an example, if you are in a group of people and you look up on a building that has glass windows and you see the picture of Mary on there and everybody sees that, but that's something that can be explained as a result of the way something was reflecting off of it, which has been what's been proven with some of the visions people see of Mary. People say, well, how do we know that those visions of Mary are not true. Well, if you go and you dig down into it, we're talking about groups of people who looked at the very same spot and they all saw the same thing and then they kind of backpedaled from there and they were able to see that there was a natural explanation for something like that. But what we're dealing with here is we're dealing with multiple people over multiple times, multiple backgrounds, sometimes during the day, sometimes during the night. All of these different things are almost impossible to think were done as a result of either a hallucination or a illusion or, de or delusion. What else is there? What else is there if you think about that? And 500 brothers and sisters all at once were reported by Paul in the epistle to Corinthians, what Bruce just read, possibly in Galilee as directed by the angel and Jesus, they saw him as well. Uh, possibly when the great commission was given as well, they saw him rise to, there were, you know, these 500 people were then there around there at that time. So. We don't really know exactly when and where this 500 people group saw him, but by the time he had written this letter, 
those 500 people, Paul tells us, some of them were still alive. And so we don't have a record of a big group of people going, hey, I was part of that 500 and it's all a lie. We just don't have that, which could have been very easy to produce at that point. And so he also revealed himself to James, the Lord's brother. Now, I don't know. I have a brother and you may have a brother and I don't know. What would it take you? What would it take for you to convince your brother that you're the son of God? And so James was not a believer in spite of everything he saw growing up and all of that. But there was something that changed his life that caused him to be a believer. And we, we see in many parts of the scripture that James, the brother of the Lord, became a believer. And so second thing is, it, is the testimony. So we have the appearances of Jesus is pretty good evidence as we see all these different people around the second one is going to be the testimony of the apostles so think about the significance of this they appealed to empirical evidence such as things that you can derive from observation and uh, experiment um, they saw and heard and touched him right so in john 1 first john 1 it says what was from the beginning what we have heard what we've seen with our eyes, what we have observed, and what we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was revealed, and we have seen it, and we testify and declare to you that eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. So John is addressing people who denied the bodily, um, the bodily deity of Jesus Christ, that he could be deity and have the body at the same time. And so he's addressing that in. He goes, no, we saw him, we heard him, we touched him, all of these things there. They ate and drank with him. Acts 10, 40 tells us that they ate and drank with him. So this is something you're not going to imagine. And especially when you're doing it with groups of people, you all imagined it at the same time. It's just so incredulous. They appealed to multiple witnesses at the same time. They appealed to multiple, uh, you know, whenever you start talking about appealing to different people of such a broad demographic, it's very unlikely that you're going to get everybody to agree on everything at the same time with all of these details. And we just have no record of anybody coming in along behind it and going, no, I was there. That's not what happened. That's not how it was, which would have been something that you would have expected considering the implications of the resurrection. But they testified that Jesus appeared to them in groups as well as in, to individuals. And that's the same sort of proof that we see in courts today. Um, there is a pretty famous atheist out there, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. You guys, I, I enjoy listening to him and talking to him. He's a pretty, pretty funny guy, and uh, he says a lot of helpful stuff about science, but he's one of the critics against the resurrection. And the other day I was watching a video by his, and that was something that he said, is that eyewitness testimony is such an unreliable um, thing to have in court, that court case after court case has demonstrated that an eyewitness testimony is just unreliable because of all of the variables involved in being able to, to fool somebody. And he said it with such matter of fact, and he is an intelligent guy, and he does say a lot of things that make sense, but he said it with such surety and matter of factness and dogmatism. But I was sitting there thinking, but we're not talking about an individual who might have you know, an eyewitness account, but we're talking about different groups of people over different demographics, over periods of time. You, that's not the same thing. And so what he's trying to do is he's trying to say that because of the fact that you have 
court cases in which eyewitnesses reveal themselves not to be credible, then any eyewitness testimony that we have about Jesus is unreliable, right? And so don't be fooled by those things. Think critically and think through these things about what the Bible is actually witnessing and showing us here. So thirdly, is the lives of the apostles are convincing proof of the resurrection. Their lives of the apostles. Think about before they got saved and then after they got saved. What were they like before, I mean, and before the ascension of Jesus and then after the ascension of Jesus, prior to the resurrection, Jesus, what happened whenever Jesus was arrested? What'd they do? They were gone, fearful, had no hope. They fled. Mark 14 says, that they fled at this point of arrest. Peter cowardly denied him how many times? Three times that night. We have women who mourned his crucifixion, right? We have his disciples were sad. You remember the two disciples who were on their way to Emmaus? And what were they talking about? They were talking about what had happened in, in Jerusalem during those days. And this stranger comes up to him and he comes up alongside of him and he goes, what are you talking about? And they, were, they stopped and they explained to him that, Everything that's happened with Jesus of Nazareth, we were hoping that he was the savior of Israel. And then, of course, Jesus came along and initially, re eventually revealed himself to them in that way. And if you remember, it's in Luke chapter 24, if you remember how they responded, they were sad going down the hill to wherever they were going from Emmaus because Jerusalem's up on a hill. So wherever they went was probably downhill. And they decided to run, some scholars believe, about seven miles uphill at the break of night in order just to tell people that they had seen him. So their lives were transformed. They were so scared and fearful and timid. And then afterwards, it was a different story. And then you remember his disciples hid behind closed doors, the Bible was telling us. Um, John 20 says, when it was evening on that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared who? The Jews. And then Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace be with you. So it transformed their lives. They were hiding out. They were cowards. After the resurrection, they were fearlessly praising God, weren't they? Changed everything. They were praising God in the temple. Afterwards, they started proclaiming Christ despite great persecution as well. This quote is by Pentius Lapide. And it says, if the disciples were totally disappointed and on the verge of desperate flight because of the very real reason of the crucifixion, it took another very real reason in order to transform them from a band of disheartened and dejected Jews into the most self-confident missionary society in the world history. It's Pinchus Lapide. It just doesn't make any sense to think that it was not true. How could he just change the lives of so many people in that way? Another thing that we don't really think about is that they insisted on a high moral standard for living. A high moral standard for living. Imagine this, like the video was making fun of, is you have this big lie that you're concocting, constructing this big, huge, you know, um, farce about what was going on. And then you leave that moment and you go about risking your lives to teach people not to lie. And that that's the content, and that's how it's successful. You think about Peter. He goes about in 1 Peter 1, 5, he says, But as the one who called you is holy, you also ought to be holy in all your conduct. I mean, how if he lied, if he made this up, 
then how in the world could he do this? And that was the that was the basis of their ministry was so that, you know, was part of the great commandment was to teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And so they took that seriously. So Ephesians 4.25 says, therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. I mean, I could go on and on and on about how that their, their lives of impeccable moral standard um, was something that would have been out of step with a big lie. Does it sound like somebody who would propagate a lie? Somebody who lived their life telling people not to lie? I mean, I guess it could happen. But again, we're just talking about the incredulous of, of this. And then they sacrificed for the gospel. This is probably one of the most convincing things for me is how they sacrificed. Um, 1 Corinthians 4, Paul is just reflecting back on his sacrifice. He says, for I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, in last place, like men condemned to die. You know, does that sound like something positive? We have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to people. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Up to this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We labor working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. Even now, we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. And so, how does that sound? Does that sound like a life worth living if it's all a lie? He gave up everything. Paul was one of the, he was in the upper echelons of the religious world of his day. He, could, he was going places, and Paul gave it up. He gave up everything, and he spent the rest of his days running, not running, boldly facing opposition, going into places that nobody would dare go into, going in and sometimes addressing your own religious group is some of the most intimidating things to do. And he had to do it by himself oftentimes. And he spent his life doing it. And he encouraged other people with no qualms about it, give your life to this cause. The transformation of the Apostle Paul is one of the greatest apologetics to the, to the veracity of the gospel's message that Jesus Christ is alive and rose from the grave. Later on, Paul in 2 Corinthians said, Are they servants of Christ? I'm thinking like a madman. I'm a better one with far more labors, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, many times near death. Five times I received the 40 lashes, lashes minus one from the Jews. There were people around who were reading this that could verify this, right? On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brothers, toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing. Not to mention there is the daily pressure on me of my concern for all the churches, all for a lie. He made it up. All but one died martyrs' deaths because of the testimony of Christ. Even Jesus' brother James was thrown off the temple, tradition tells us, and then clubbed to death for his testimony. So there was no motive for them to persistently lie this. I mean, what did they get? What was the purpose of this? So, I opened our time together with a statement. The evidence 
of, for the resurrection of Jesus is multiple, credible, and convincing. It's multiple, credible, and convincing. Can we tie all the bows and answer all the questions that we have? Not yet. But we don't have any defeaters, too. And those of you who are familiar with philosophy, there are no defeaters to the resurrection. And that should give us comfort. and should give us a lot of confidence in that. So what is the implication for us today? What does it mean for you and me? In spite of the things that we're seeing in the world, in spite of the way our culture is going to turn, in many ways, away from the central tenet of the gospel is the resurrection and the, the giving of life to those who believe in Jesus Christ for it. As the culture turns away from that, and as we have social media and we have all of these different inputs into our children's minds and into our young people's minds and all of these things, and they don't understand this, ba this is basic apologetics for the resurrection is what I'm giving you today. Many of you have heard this before and you have others you could add to it. But our young people and those of you who perhaps are newer to the faith and don't understand the veracity of the scriptures, you need to know these things because of the fact that smarter people than us for over 2,000 years have been investigating this. And you'll hear something every once in a while, oh, there's a new book, there's a new archaeological find that demonstrates the fallibility of the gospel and the resurrection. And eventually, it, it turns into nothing. They've been doing that for 2,000 years. So, what, what is the implication for us today? Well, I think the implication for us today is I want you to take solace and comfort in the reality of your risen Lord. There is credible and multiple proof. Not scientific proof, but reasonable proof for the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So why not allow such proof to transform your life as it did those in the first century? Jesus gave his disciples many proofs. He appeared to them over many times during 40 days. He spoke with them. He ate with them. They let them touch him. He let them touch them. He met with them in groups, large and small, as well as individually. Such proof was convincing for them, wasn't it? For them to change their lives because not a single eyewitness recanted his testimony of the resurrection. They endured great hardship throughout their lives because of their testimony, and they were willing to die for that testimony. And many of them did. We too have many infallible proofs because of the nature of their testimony, the transformation that took place in their lives, and the high moral standard by which they lived their lives, and also by the personal sacrifices that they made. And so, as we close, we reflect on the passage that is a, the thesis statement for the book of John which is the only book in the New Testament that is explicitly written to bring people from unbelief to belief. He says in John chapter 20, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Why not allow such proof of this transform your life as it did the apostles, and the, as it does the lives of thousands of people before you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the testimony. We thank you, Lord, for the way that the gospels interweave this story in such a way that leaves out things we would like to see, but then includes things that we do not expect. You just can't make it up, Lord. 
and brings veracity to your word. We thank you for that. And Lord, we know we don't have all the answers. There are questions that we have to make fit into the story that we have, but we know that you have those things figured out. And we know just from the life that we have, this eternal life that you've given us, that you exist and that you are real and that you're working in our lives. Lord, I pray for those maybe here who have hesitated in believing in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that their minds and their hearts are open. I pray that in this moment that their, their attitudes and their perspective and their willingness, Lord, to, to acquiesce to much of the testimony of your word, I pray, Lord, that you would help them to do that. We love you, Lord. We thank you for our lives. We thank you for the Holy Spirit and what you're doing. And we pray, God, that you would help us as a church to stand firm on your word that we have all the reason in the world to believe that your son is alive and he has saved us and we're going to see him again someday. We love you, Lord. We thank you for our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.